Hi folks, this is Jacob Grace with Grassland 2.0. In the fall of 2021, Grassland 2.0 hosted a four-part digital dialogue series focused on the question, what are healthy agroecosystems? The series explored benefits these systems have on people, farms, communities, and the land. This episode features a recording of Dr. Stefan von Vliet, nutrition scientist and metabolics expert at the Center for Human Nutrition Studies at Utah State University. Dr. Von Vliet will discuss the link between animal and human health and the differences in phytonutrients and phytochemicals between conventional and grass-fed meat and milk. Here's Stefan von Vliet, recorded in October of 2021. So... Welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Sarah Lloyd. I am working on the Grassland 2.0 project and uh, in the supply chain development work. And I am going to be the moderator today. So I want to kick it over to Jean Schriefer, who is a UW Extension educator um, in the southwestern part of the state. And he is going to introduce our special guest speaker today. So go for it, Gene. Sure. Thank you very much, Sarah. Uh, Gene Schriefer, um, Iowa County, uh, out in the southwest corner of the state, uh, working with uh, the learning hubs out here, uh, also a grass-fed beef producer. And uh, this afternoon, we have the uh, privilege of hearing from uh, Stefan von Vliet, uh, with the Duke Molecular Physiologic, Physiology Institute at the Duke University School of Medicine. And uh, it was just over a year ago uh, that uh, um, Stefan had filled out an information form with the Wisconsin Meadows Grass-Fed Beef Cooperative, talking about some interesting data he was finding uh, comparing grass-fed beef with feedlot beef and also uh, plant burgers uh, and and what the nutritional comparisons were and uh, how these may impact um, uh, human health. And uh, I, I've been following this topic for many years, um, probably about 20 years ago, um, Wisconsin uh, uh, did some foundational research on CLAs. Uh, we had a researcher by the name of Tlock Diamond uh, who moved on to uh, Utah State to continue his work and looking at the health benefits of, of grass-fed over grain-fed uh, milk and uh, dairy and meat products. So um, that work is continuing. Um, human health research is rather slow, uh, but it is coming along. And um, related to the additional excitement is generational changes and as we look at purchasing preferences or goals of um, millennials uh, gen z's and the new alpha generation they're thinking about food as health and here is something that potentially uh, answers that question where we can have a healthy environment and a healthier us and focus on uh, the human aspect of that now you'll notice in the first slide, uh, Duke University School of Medicine, uh, Stefan will be leaving uh, for Utah State, uh, looks like starting in January. And uh, Wisconsin missed the opportunity because he was a finalist for a position here at UW-Madison. 
And I got my, I got terribly excited about that opportunity that that might uh, represent for us, but he wanted to be an Aggie and not a Badger. Uh, so uh, we're questioning your judgment, Stefan. So with that, uh, let's welcome uh, Stefan and listen to uh, the data that he's able to generate uh, regarding uh, the linkages between human and animal, animal and human health. Thank you. Thanks so much for that uh, great introduction, uh, Gene, and I, I appreciate uh, being here and giving me the opportunity to discuss our work. Um, so what we're talking about today is really the linkages uh, between animal and human health. So a lot of my uh, research and that of my group is really at the nexus of agriculture and human health. Being in schools of medicine for the past several years, uh, first at WashU and now at Duke, really uh, uh, gave me an, a unique insight. And I got increasingly interested in uh, linking the fields of food production, agriculture with human health, because most of the diseases of dietary origin that we're studying in nutrition departments and in schools of medicine is, uh, can be traced back in, to an extent to diet. Um, so it's really the focus is, is building health from, from the ground up. And today I'll talk about uh, meat and milk as sources of phytochemicals. Uh, their presence has remains largely underappreciated in nutritional discussions on grass-fed meat and milk, which have predominantly centered around omega-3 fatty acids and, and conjugated linoleic acid. But um, really the work that we've been performing and others have also performed finds that uh, uh, various potentially health-promoting compounds are transferred from the forage into the meat and milk and animals. Uh, and I'll discuss the data on antioxidants, animal foods with you today, and how the way that we raise our livestock potentially impacts our health. Uh, this is my disclosure slide, uh, current research funding from USDA, NIFA, SARE, and ARS, as well as uh, foundation research uh, through uh, uh, Dirty Institute of Eager Agriculture, the Dixon Water Foundation, and uh, uh, NCBA. Uh, and below you also find my conflict of interest policy. So today's agenda is broken up into several smaller parts. Um, first, I'll provide a little bit of a background uh, on, on understanding the relationship amongst plant, animal, and human health, and uh, why uh, we believe there's a relationship and we're all interconnected. Uh, the second part, We'll look at the impact of grazing practices on uh, potential health-promoting phytochemicals in meat and milk. We're going to briefly look at some of the human health data. And as Gene alluded to, uh, there is unfortunately a lack of it at the moment. So that won't be a long portion. And then we'll end up with a uh, study that we recently published in scientific reports um, that uh, compared meat, grass-fed beef particularly, with uh, novel plant-based meat alternatives, which are both sometimes considered as... Uh, uh, healthier or potentially more environmentally sustainable sources of, uh, of quote-unquote meat, though there are certainly nuances uh, to that, uh, which I'm sure we'll discuss today. So sort of a zooming out first, using a bigger picture approach, I mean, there's a lot of uh, concern about uh, agriculture and its effect on the environment. And there's also a particular concern about red meat and dairy and animal source foods in particular on human health. Now, if we look at agricultural's environmental footprint, we use over a third of the Earth's land surface uh, and 75% of the fresh water supply for crop and livestock. And I deliberately separated the two uh, because we 
in agriculture after the Green Revolution really moved towards monocultures where uh, single monocultures of animals and typically monocultures of uh, crop production as well. Now, we uh, wrote about this recently in a, in a paper where, uh, and this is one of the things that we, we try to highlight is monoculture versus biodiversity and its impacts on both agricultural and potentially human health. Now, it is clear that if we look at nature, there is no real monocultures in nature. That is something that's man-made. If you look into nature, there will always be plants and animals and oftentimes a wide variety of plants and animals, and particularly herbivores. So nature has introduced great biodiversity into ecosystems, but we as humans, for some reason, are always adamant on simplifying it to single species of crops and animals, and oftentimes also in separated uh, production systems that, as a result, re require considerable external fossil fuel inputs. Now, if you're looking on the, on the left, uh, a typical monoculture, uh, one crop requiring considerable inputs, uh, maybe there might be something like a soy and corn bean rotation, uh, but typically a monoculture, monoculture pastures. Whereas on, on the right, we're looking at uh, an example of biodiverse, uh, quote unquote, regenerative farm that can produce multiple crops and livestock uh, products. Um, certainly these decisions have to be made according to uh, uh, geographical scales and, and implemented where possible, but in typically uh, some degree of biodiversity, even if it's within grazing systems, multiple plants can have potential benefits for, for soil and, uh, and plant health. Um, so regarding producti productivity and sustainability, simplified systems are typically productive in the short run, but they do make it difficult for farming systems to recycle nutrients and sustain be sustainable in the long run. And that is really one of the main challenges that we have, according to several reports, such as the FAO and the IPCC, is how can we maintain sustainability in the long run and how do we cut back on external inputs and improve the efficiency in the use of resources? So the five principles of sustainable food and agricultural production, according to the FAO, are indeed improving resources, conserving, protecting, and enhancing natural ecosystems. One thing we should also keep in mind is the economical aspect of this. For something to be sustainable, it also needs to be profitable. So it's protecting and improving rural livelihoods and equity. And then overall, of course, uh, the resilience of people, communities, and ecosystems, and promoting good governance of both natural and human systems. So in other words, do practices that have potentially beneficial effects for uh, natural, for ecosystems also benefit us uh, as humans, because ultimately we're also part of the ecosystem. One major issue is obviously our other dependence on fossil fuels and agriculture to produce foods. And this is a paper uh, that came out in 2020, Economics for the Future Beyond the Superorganism. Uh, I highly recommend uh, the paper besides having uh, a ton of good information. It is also written very uh, entertaining and uh, oftentimes uh, in a much different way as uh, uh, I would see papers being written in, in uh, the nutrition field. So, but the short end of it, the, the author makes the point that to produce one calorie of food, it requires two calories of fossil fuels, the machinery to plant, harvest, and irrigate crops, to produce uh, fertilizers and other agrochemicals to grow and protect these crops, as well as to produce antibiotics and other, other products to maintain the health of livestock. Now we also require another 
8 to 12 calorie equivalents of energy to process packages and deliver and storage to the food. Uh, and also waste food, which is also taken account into this. So can a species survive on 10 to 14 calories of energy to gain one uh, calorie of energy? The obvious question would probably be probably not. So we need to make some changes uh, moving forward. Um, we talked about this in, in terms of, and it's sometimes referred to as regenerative agriculture, agroecological uh, systems. It's basically linking plant, animal, and human health. And, and uh, where possible, improving the nutrient cycles, um, as in, in the case of multi-species livestock systems or, or uh, pasture-based systems with, with, with biodiversity on the land that, that provides potential wildlife habitat. Also with multi-species systems, there may be opportunities to integrate uh, cattle with, 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 with lamb or, or even chickens that can then use the larvae and forage residue as poultry feed. Uh, where possible uh, with neighboring farms, there's a chance to graze crop residue even on within the same farm or, or neighboring farms, even in the case if there's some uh, monocultures. Uh, it can also improve fertilization um, through the manure of, the, of the, the cow. And so these are ways of, of potentially coupling uh, nutrient systems within agroecological farming. And we also have a particular interest in a lot of work that we do is systems type of research. So there's a, uh, definitely a whole team uh, of us working on this. My focus is really the human nutrition part, which we'll go into next. But do these agroecological farming systems, so in other words, environmentally beneficial production systems also benefit uh, our health and the nutrient density of the foods that we consume. Now, there's certainly an increased consumer and farmer interest in pasture-based uh, meat and milk. The retail sales of U.S. grass-fed beef have doubled uh, every year since 2012. The global organic dairy market is also on the rise. And what a lot of farmers are referring to now, taking it perhaps one step beyond just being uh, pasture-raised, is regenerative livestock farming, which uh, are oftentimes termed or described as systems that aim to improve soil health, plant diversity, climate resilience, and also the health of communities. Now, if we link the production to human health, and we're, um, but the data I'm gonna to present to you today, is some of our initial data from a USDA SARE uh, project, uh, we're looking at regenerative farming systems. And oftentimes we hear this, especially in the farming communities that healthy soils equals healthy plants equals healthy animals and equals healthy humans. Now using the metabolomics techniques, and I'll go into it, what that is in a little bit, we are looking at nutrient transfer along this continuum. So if we take soil samples and look at the metabolites and nutrients within the soil, the plant, the animal and the human, do we see a relationship along this continuum where we see improvements in soil health, plant health, animal health, and potentially human health. So on-farm sample collection, the project that I'll present the data from, uh, we work with several pasture-based farmers. Um, one of the things that we do in here, you can uh, see Alan Franz Lewers, one of the co-investigators collecting soil samples. So we collect soil samples from biodiverse pastures and neighboring cornfields. So the corn, obviously we're going to the commodity market used for ethanol, a lot of it ends up in, in livestock feed. And we're looking at a biodiverse pasture. So 
the soil is in the same geographical location, but here we're looking at do different management practices impact uh, the, the health of, of the soils. Then we subsequently collect plant samples. So a total mixed ration sample, a uh, pasture sample. We're also using um, UAVs to look at the diversity of the pasture, getting an aerial view. view. And last but not least, we collect meat samples, uh, grain samples, and grass-fed uh, beef samples. And uh, we compare those using a technique called metabolomics. So metabolomics uh, is really a, a technique where we take biological samples. These could be anything from soil samples, plant samples, food samples, but also human samples that are processed in the wet lab. We typically run them through a uh, tandem uh, mass spec and LCMSMS. So certainly depending on the, the compounds you're looking at, we might also use a GCMS. We identify a wide variety of metabolites and we do subsequent bioactivities and pathway analysis. So as you can imagine, you end up with 500 to 1,000 metabolites. And we group these in specific classes such as uh, phenols, terpenes, fatty acids, amino acids, which are all... Uh, examples of metabolites. And then we overlay these metabolomes. So essentially we would overlay the forage metabolome. So the metabolites and nutrients in the forage that we find with the uh, meat and then human uh, samples, which are typically plasma or urine or stool. And we look at the metabolite or nutrient transfer along this continuum. And this technique is typically referred to as specifically when we look at food, it's referred to as food metabolomics or, or food domics. Um, and it really goes beyond protein, vitamins, uh, minerals, and fatty acids. So if we were to pick up a package of, uh, of uh, a package of food, we typically see up to 13 nutrients appearing on those nutrition facts panels. So that is protein, carbohydrates, fat, and within that, we might see uh, sugar content, fiber content, saturated fat content, as well as a handful of vitamins and minerals. Now, foods are certainly much, much more complex than that. And even in the USDA food composition database, we only routinely track 150 components and they form the understanding uh, or the basis of our nutritional understanding and, and dietary guidelines and policies. But as alluded to, the food matrix, especially once we look at uh, secondary metabolites, such as polyphenols, terpenes, tocopherols, and other phytonutrients with potential health uh, effects, or that certainly affect metabolism, we see that foods contain thousands, if not uh, hundreds of thousands of metabolites. So in here, we're connecting the presence of these compounds in foods and dietary patterns with the human metabolome, and really studying how the biochemical complexity of these foods impact human health, as well as the nutrigenome, which is a disease-related gene expression. Um, and it allows us to do so in appreciation of the whole food matrix rather than uh, looking at, at single nutrients uh, and associating that with human health. Because obviously we do not consume nutrients, we consume foods. Now, what is a metabolite? Well, metabolites are small molecules that we either obtain from the breakdown of foods, uh, drugs, chemicals, or even our own tissues. For instance, when we break down our adipose tissue or our muscle tissue, we might generate amino acids. Uh, when we break down our adipose tissue, we generate fatty acids. 
Um, certainly, we get these compounds also from uh, certain foods such as, uh, such as steak or, or cheese, which are uh, sources of, uh, of protein and several fatty acids. And we focus on plant secondary uh, compounds, things like carotenoids and certain phenolic acids. We obtain those from plant foods, but certainly also we can obtain these from animal source foods. Uh, and what is particularly unique is that the animal, of course, consumes vegetation you and I cannot which may provide an additional avenue, as we found out, uh, to, uh, that, that can improve the, the phytochemical richness of our diet. And that is really what we are focusing on, on now. Um, the impact of livestock production systems on the phytochemical richness of meat and milk. Now, what are phytochemicals? Phytochemicals are plant-produced metabolites. Plants respond biochemically to sunlight, moisture, nutrients, uh, other plants, and, and herbivores by producing phytochemicals. And this can be thousands to hundreds of thousands of compounds. And we're really scratching the surface on, uh, on this uh, particular research and our understanding of uh, how these compounds impact our health. But there is certainly uh, research to suggest uh, in vitro, so in petri dish models, in animal models, but also more recently in human uh, models to suggest that these phytochemicals uh, are potentially anti-inflammatory, antibacterial, antioxidant and brain protective at moderate doses, because we also know that at high doses, some of these can also become, uh, become problematic. Uh, but at, at moderate doses, you can, these can be anti-inflammatory, antibacterial, antioxidant to both the animal and potentially also to us. Um, I'm just gonna throw it out there right away. Pasture grazing results in a higher meat and milk phytonutrient content. Um, and we'll go into it, into it later, into specifics. But what I do want to highlight is, and what is particular also in, in nutrition science, but in often fields of science, is that the golden rule is if you have thought about it, there's a good chance someone else has thought about it before you. Now, this data is from 1987 um, by, by Dwight Larrick uh, et al., uh, which was actually uh, research conducted at NC State. Now, they looked at phytochemicals in more of a crude total uh, measurement and, and parts per million per kilogram beef and found that there's higher amounts in grass-fed beef that was uh, on a monoculture fescue versus grain-fed uh, animals, uh, corn in, in particular, corn-based total mixed ration. More recent work uh, out of uh, Mexico, this actually is, uh, also found that uh, when this is done in goats, goats, cheese. When animals are on biodiverse uh, pastures, in this case, they were consuming over 20 different species, the polyphenols, which is a class of phytochemicals, are higher in uh, uh, cheese particular and, and appear to be much higher when compared to when the animals fed hay and concentrate. So here we see initial, looking at the literature, an importance of biodiversity or plant diversity of, of the animal. And that is really what we were finding too in initial work. Um, pasture grazing accumulates phytochemicals in meat. So the phytochemicals that are in the forage get uh, directly transferred into the meat and milk. And oftentimes um, the phytochemicals are not often talked about in the context of grass-fed meat and milk. And one of the reasons being is that I think or in meat and milk in general, is that oftentimes you cannot even detect these compounds in animals that are fed uh, or finished on concentrate, in this case, in, in beef. And these are things such as uh, terpenes, uh, such as alpha-cubinine, uh, beta-carophyllene, 
uh, uh, catenine 1,4-dianine, and they have all very uh, difficult names, but uh, these are all, all terp, uh, terpene compounds. And uh, certainly they could have potential antiviral and anti-cancer effect, at least in in vitro models, anti-inflammatory effects, antimicrobial effects. Now we certainly must do more research in uh, humans on this, because uh, a lot of this is done in animal models. Uh, and in in vitro models, but there could be potential health benefits to to ingesting these, and, and they're found exclusively or higher in uh, in grass-fed beef. Now, this is work uh, that was done by another group uh, from 2019, looking at several antioxidant phenolics such as uh, chlorogenic acid, ferulic acid, catechin. So, chlorogenic acid is actually found widely in coffee. Um, catechin is believed to be an antioxidant that is responsible in part for the health effects of green tea. Now, as you can see, these are detectable when in, in the milk of goats on diversified pasture, but are indetectable when the animal is on total mixed ration, in this case, 60% hay and 40% grain. Now, a question I often get is, is that are these meaningful amounts? Well, I in the interest of time, I don't have the slide on here, but when you actually compare the content milligrams of catechin per 100 milliliters of milk uh, and compare that to some of the green teas, you can see that at least on the lower end of the green teas, uh, diverse uh, milk from animals on diversified pasture provides uh, milligrams of catechin that are somewhat similar to, to those found in, in green tea. Um, so certainly there's an interesting finding that uh, we need to follow up uh, more on, but uh, there is certainly uh, some, some evidence to suggest that these phytochemicals can also be provided in meaningful amounts in uh, grass-fed meat and milk. Now, I certainly don't want to make the, the case that uh, uh, this negates the, the, the need to consume plant foods. Plant foods typically are uh, five to 20 fold higher in, in phytochemicals. But what is particularly unique, and I think this is a key part, obviously herbivores consume plant species that you and I cannot consume, um, that are not consumed by humans simply because we, our guts cannot uh, uh, digest it. So this represents another dietary avenue by which complementary but also unique phytochemicals are ingested. For instance, some of the work has found things such as compounds such as alpha and beta pinene, which are named after the pine, after pine trees, that's a common source, but they're also found in sagebrush. And they're studied for medicinal effects in, in certain plant essential oils, but they are also found in grass-fed meat and milk and other examples there are also found to the left, uh, uh, alpha uh, copanine, alpha beta carophyllene, which have possible livestock and human health benefits. And, and uh, the wide variety of, of terpenes could have medicinal properties both to the animal and potentially also to us, which is uh, really uh, what needs to be studied more. Now, this is some recent metabolomics data uh, that I'd like to present on bison. So we also did these analysis in bison, bison that were finished on a diverse mixture of plants, over 20 different plants versus bison that were fed uh, concentrate, which is a mixture of, uh, of hay and, uh, and grain. And if we look at the pathway here, and we already discovered some of these, like caffeic acid, again, found recently in coffee and, and uh, as a metabolite of that ferulic acid. But if we look at here to the left, so plant phenolic compounds, 
they increase benzoate and also hyperate and cannabinoid sulfate. Now, if we look at this, this pathway and then look at what we found using our metabolomics analysis, we find that hyperate uh, is much higher when the bison are finished on grass versus when the bison are finished on grain. When we looked at, uh, did a pathway analysis looking at benzoate metabolism, and if you refer back to the figure on the left, here also benzoate uh, metabolism is involved in, in the uh, metabolism of panphenolic compounds. And we found several of these compounds in uh, this, this pathway. So metabolites of plant phenolic compounds to be uh, in, in about one to fourfold uh, elevated in uh, the grass-fed animals when compared to the grain-fed animals. Again, indicating that phenolic compounds are accumulated in, uh, in, in this case, bison meat. So, from the previous slide, I showed you quinate. So this is quinic acid, uh, higher in grass-fed beef versus or grass-fed bison, I should say, versus uh, concentrate-fed uh, bison. Uh, again, other compounds such as uh, hydroxycinamic acid uh, that could have potential anti-inflammatory and antioxidant effects for the animal, potentially also for us, higher. Uh, sesamol, another compound found to be higher. And we really looked at about six to 700 metabolites and found that about half of them were uh, uh, differentially expressed in the grass-fed or grain-fed beef. And what is particularly what uh, found to be interesting is that looking at the metabolites of the meat gives us clues about animal health. So I'm originally trained as a uh, human nutrition scientist and certainly a lot of the work that I do is in the human nutrition realm. From human subjects, we get humans in, into uh, my lab. These could be, uh, uh, a variety of populations, people with metabolic disease, athletes, uh, people with, with early signs of, of metabolic syndrome. Um, and we take biopsies from them as well, small pieces of muscle. Now with the meat metabolites, obviously, if we have meat from humans or meat from animals, we analyze those really in, in the same manner and look at, because we can see something about the metabolic health of the human based on their muscle. Now, can we do the same thing in the meat? What the figure illustrates here, if we look at this first, we see that glucose was elevated on the grain finished bison. We also look at various of these pathways like glycolytic pathways, as well as the TCA cycle. So the TCA cycle, is related to mitochondrial metabolism. Mitochondria are really the powerhouse of our cells. Um, they're elevated. These, these intermediates are typically elevated in endurance athletes that we see in our lab. Now, we see these intermediates also being elevated in the grass-fed animals. We also see early signs of uh, glucose uh, dysfunction, so glucose met metabolic dysfunction in the grain-fed animals and as well as higher glucose. So what we're actually seeing is if we pull this back to your nutrition stuff, the animals finished on grain show a pre-diabetic metabolic syndrome phenotype that we typically see in humans. And the grass-fed uh, finished animals show a phenotype that we typically see in athletes, in human athletes. So it's interesting to see that from these meat metabolites, we can give us clues about animal health. And uh, uh, certainly we, we need more data 
to link the two, but it is certainly interesting to ponder is that does, uh, when the animal shows a sort of an athletic versus a early signs of metabolic syndrome, how does that impact our health and our disease risk? Now, pulling it back to, to the older work again uh, from, uh, from Larrick in, in, in NC State, what he found was is that when the animals are kept on total mixed ration in the feedlot, and this was done uh, by harvesting animals uh, routinely, first after 45 days, and uh, it was after about 70 days and then 120 days, what, what he found was is that the phytochemicals are cut in half uh, after uh, 45 days on total mixed ration and are further decreased, about threefold decreased after 120 days. So you see this decrease in the phytochemical richness when animals finish the feedlots. And, and more recently, this was also found in uh, Italian work that was done on, uh, on lambs. Now, there is a direct relationship between the phytochemicals in forage and those that found in meat and milk. If we look at the forage polyphenol content here on the x-axis and look at the milk polyphenol content on the y-axis, all the way up here is uh, grassland pasture. Grassland pasture contains some of the highest amounts of uh, polyphenols much higher than when that same grass, uh, grassland uh, pasture is uh, built into hay uh, or ryegrass hay or ryegrass silage. And corn total mixed ration contain the lowest polyphenol content of all studied forages and subsequently also results in the lowest milk polyphenol content, whereas grassland pasture has the highest milk polyphenol content and also the highest forage polyphenol content. So there is a direct relationship between phytochemicals in, in forage and meat and milk. And while it intuitively makes sense, um, it is important that, uh, that yeah, we, we consider this uh, in the way that we, uh, we raise livestock and how that can impact the nutritional quality of our, of our products. So this is sort of a summary slide that pulls it all together. And it basically finds that greater plant diversity results in a higher phytonutrient content. Now, grass-fed beef isn't grass-fed beef, isn't grass-fed beef. When animals are finished on plant species diverse pastures, uh, which can have potential soil health benefits uh, and, and biodiversity benefits also for the pasture, we see that this also translates into the most phytochemical rich uh, meat and milk with it somewhat reduced on a monoculture pasture. And as I uh, alluded to earlier in uh, some of the data, uh, lower or sometimes undetectable when animals are feed, feedlots finished on concentrates. Um, certainly here, the importance is, is using local adaptation. So things such as biodiverse pasture seeding, cover crop grazing where possible are all uh, potential uh, methods by which we can potentially increase the, the phytochemical richness of meat and milk. And uh, yeah, certainly here, local adaptations uh, are, are key. Um, but what we're seeing is, is that we think comparisons of meat from North Dakota, from North Carolina, from Alabama, uh, Idaho. And typically what we see is pretty much irrespective of the geographical location, farmers that uh, have biodiverse pastures and make it a priority to improve biodiversity on their farm typically ends up with, uh, with the most phytochemically rich uh, piece of meat. Certainly there will be subtle differences, whether the uh, depending on the plants that the animals are on, but typically, irrespective of the geographical location, uh, we see that uh, diversity uh, benefits the phytochemicals in meat. 
The conclusions, foods contain thousands of biochemicals that are potentially capable of impacting human health. Um, several phytonutrients uh, become concentrated in the meat and milk of animals. And typically, or at least I would argue they have been underappreciated historically in discussions of grass-fed meat and milk would have predominantly centered around omega-3 fatty acids and conjugated linoleic acid. Certainly very important work also, but oftentimes I also hear is that, well, there's some difference in omega-3 fatty acids and conjugated linoleic acid, but other than that, there's not much nutritional differences between grass-fed meat and milk. Well, there are big nutritional differences and, and just as big as you would expect in a human if they are consuming a Mediterranean diet or a uh, standard American diet, we would expect large differences in uh, what circulates uh, in, in their tissues. And we see the same thing uh, uh, with animals really. Um, several phytochemicals may have anti-inflammatory antioxidant effects, uh, but we certainly must uh, further study their importance in grass-fed meat and milk in human nutrition trials. And this is, I think, a main part to take away is herbivores consume plant species, otherwise not consumed by humans. So it represents another dietary avenue by which we can increase the uh, overall amount as well as the variety of phytochemicals that we ingest. So we have ongoing nutritional studies, uh, but I do want to look at some of the, the work uh, that is, is current, that has been performed and, and what was found. So grass-fed meat and dairy has mostly been studied for the inflammatory response. So inflammation plays a central role in metabolic disease. Uh, it's rooted in most metabolic diseases, for instance, in coronary artery plaque, so cardiometabolic disease risk, but also so heart attack, stroke, but it's also uh, thought to be a central role in cancer, diabetes, and arthritis. Um, now, every time we eat, we do have an inflammatory response, but if this inflammatory response to food becomes elevated and turns into low-grade systemic inflammation, that is when we run into trouble and we increase our risk of metabolic disease. Now, this is a study from Australia that is done 10 years ago that we're currently replicating with uh, grass-fed and grain-fed beef that found that in the hours after the meal, the uh, kangaroo meat, which was foraging on native pastures, first the wagyu beef, a very fatty uh, piece of, of, of beef that is often finished for uh, 300 days or even up to 500 days in a feedlot, um, that a marker of inflammation, in this case, interleukin-6 and C-reactive protein is elevated with the, the grain-fed uh, uh, Wagyu beef. Now, certainly we always have an inflammatory response every time after we eat, but we don't want this inflammatory response to be too dramatic. What the authors found was is that the forage-fed uh, kangaroo elicited a lower inflammatory response. Now, certainly as you may uh, will point out, rightfully so, what is the impact of forage versus the animal? Clearly animal here is, uh, is confounded. And, and the, even though the fat was cut off from the, uh, the visible fat was cut off from the, the steaks, uh, the beef steaks, the intramuscular fat must certainly have been higher compared to the kangaroo. Now, there's also been some long-term work um, done. This is work out of Italy that found that uh, when Italians consumed half a pound of grass-fed pecorino, so that is uh, sheep made, uh, cheese made from sheep and not just any sheep, but sheep that are grazing biodiverse pastures on, uh, in Sardinia, Italy. And we know that mountain pastures 
are one of amongst the most phytochemically rich pastures. What they found was is that when uh, the Italians consumed grass-fed pecorino for 10 weeks, their inflammation went down and the placebo was just a, a grain-fed uh, uh, cheese. Work out of uh, Texas A&M found no difference between grass-fed and grain-fed beef after uh, five weeks, four or five ounce patties. Uh, a lot of this work or none of this work really linked it back to uh, really providing any information on how the animal is raised. What we can gather from this work is that the uh, cheese was, was from, diverse, from cheap on the first five pastures in Sardinia, Italy, presumably having access to maybe 50 to 100 different plants. And uh, the grass-fed animals here were on a Bermuda monoculture pasture and the grain-fed animals were fed a high oleic acid diet. So presumably maybe a little bit more favorable uh, omega-3 to 6 ratio than uh, you would typically get in, in feedlot beef. But as you can see here, monoculture and the grain-fed uh, uh, beef did not provide any, any differences. So is the answer, is it the difference in diversified versus monoculture pasture? Certainly our data suggests that the diversified pasture has more phytochemicals than the monoculture, but also the time frame and the background diet. So these are, and like I said, none of these related back to uh, grazing practices directly. So these are some of the work that we have uh, ongoing, but as, as Jean talked about earlier, new nutrition studies take, uh, take a while to complete. Now, research is sparse, but um, some studies show a potential for anti-inflammatory effects. Uh, there's also data, especially from the CLA and uh, uh, omega-3 data that uh, people can experience improved lipoprotein profiles or higher amounts of circulating omega-3 fatty acids in the blood when people consume pasteurized meat and dairy, uh, which is thought to be associated with a reduced risk of metabolic diseases such as uh, diabetes and, and uh, heart disease and cancer. Current knowledge does not allow for direct linking of livestock production practices. We need more human data, and that is really the key. We really need more human data on this, on this topic. But what I do feel comfortable to say is that biodiverse pasture meat and milk does look healthier on paper. Um, addressing this research gap, and this is really what I'm so excited about in the field for the last few years, there's much more uh, collaborative efforts between farmers, agricultural scientists, as well as you and nutrition scientists, because ultimately we, I think we all have the same goal, which is how to produce healthy nourishing foods in, in ways that we can hopefully do sustainably in a way that we can do it in 200 years from now uh, still. Finally, uh, I'll just go over this quickly is a recent paper that we published. We compared uh, novel plant-based meat alternatives with grass-fed beef. And uh, to see if grass-fed beef is a, uh, or plant-based meat alternatives are a viable compare, uh, replacement for beef and of course, vice versa. So similar nutrition labels, and these are the nutrition labels of the products that we studied. Uh, one of them is beef, the other one is a plant-based meat alternative. Now the question is, which is which? As you can see from the labels, protein content is matched, fat content is matched, as well as several vitamins and minerals are uh, fairly similar. Now, some of you probably picked up on this, but the, on the left, we see ground beef. On the right, we see the plant-based alternative. These vitamins and minerals are naturally occurring uh, and the plant-based meat alternative has added vitamins and minerals uh, to more closely represent the nutritional uh, facts panel of beef. Now, as we talked about earlier, 
these nutrients that appear on nutrition facts panels, these 13 nutrients, those are not indicative of the food matrix, which is very complex and contains hundreds or thousands of metabolites. So if you didn't see the, couldn't pick out the difference between the two right away, no worries, because 50% of consumers uh, potentially view these as uh, nutritionally interchangeable when presented with these nutrition effects panels. And they're also often marketed uh, as such. Um, and this is a, a popular quote from a uh, uh, CEO of one of the companies that uh, once said they're designed to meet, if not exceed, the nutritional profile of animal protein equivalents. Now, I'm not sure if we can say if they exceeded it, but we can potentially study whether they are different or not. So that is what we did. Sample acquisition, uh, a plant-based meat alternative, a popular plant-based meat alternative, and uh, beef. We cooked up the patties uh, identically, cooked them up identically, sampled the core using a biopsy needle, much like we do in uh, humans, what we, we, we put in a, in a beef patty this time, and a plant-based patty. Processed the samples, run them to a GCMS, identified metabolites, did false discovery rate adjusted statistics and multivariate analysis and did a bioactivity and pathway analysis to evaluate whether plant-based meat alternatives and meat are nutritionally interchangeable. Now, if you have uh, no uh, knowledge of uh, metabolomics, um, then you can probably already gather from this figure is that uh, there's no overlap between uh, uh, ground beef and a plant-based meat alternative. This is a principal component analysis. So what this analysis does is after you've put all the metabolites irrespective of the source, whether being plant or animal meat, you put them in, in, a, in a computer model and, and uh, the model figures out which samples cluster together. We see that uh, the ground beef samples cluster together really well and the plant-based meat samples cluster together really well, but they are also very much separated from each other. So if ground, if the beef and the plant-based meat alternative, so GB is grass-fed beef, PB is the plant-based alternative. So plant-based alternative, beef. If we expect them to be uh, nutritionally interchangeable, we expect them all to overlap. So the ground beef would be here, the plant-based beef uh, meat would be here and they would all overlap. And we could not distinguish between the two, but the lack of overlap illustrates that substantial differences exist. So. And this is a very big difference. Normally, we don't see these, these big differences when we study uh, uh, humans in dietary intervention trials. So we had a good chuckle in our metabolomics uh, uh, core as well, because the differences are pretty much day and night. Um, a novel plant-based meal alternative is not a one-to-one -one nutritional replacement when considering the whole food matrix. So these expanded pools of metabolites. This is a heat map of the top 50 metabolites. Um, what we found was, is that we annotated 190 metabolites that we could, could name and, and very several hundred metabolites that uh, we could, could not per se uh, name, but were potentially different, but we found a 90% difference in metabolite abundance. Now, this does not mean that the ground beef was 90% more nutrition, uh, nutrient dense or that the plant-based meat alternative was 90% more nutrition uh, dense. We cannot determine from this data whether one is healthier to consume than another, but it's also beyond the point because it is not an apples and oranges comparison. It is literally a meat from soy versus a meat from cow comparison. Here in green are the plant-based alternatives. In red is the ground beef. Blue means lower abundance of this metabolite. And here 
the blue means ab uh, absence and red means higher abundance. So if we look at several phenolic compounds, such as uh, vanillic acid, sulfuryl, three, uh, phenylactic acid, which are common phenolic compounds found in soy, we can see that these are only detected in the plant-based alternative, which was soy-based. Then if we go down and look at certain antioxidants, such as uh, allantoin, cysteamine, anserine, squalene, glucosamine, uh, hypoxanthine, these were only found in the grass-fed beef and not in the plant-based meat alternative. Um, we also found several medium-chain triglycerides, uh, trilorin, dicaprin, which are coconut, typically found in coconut oil. That is not surprising because one of the ingredients in the plant-based meat alternative is coconut oil. These were only found in the uh, plant-based alternative, but not in the beef. So we found potentially health-promoting compounds in the plant-based alternative. We found potentially health-promoting compounds in the meat, but they are just not the same. So novel plant-based meat alternatives could be treated as alternatives in terms of surgery experience, but not as true meat replacements in terms of nutrition. Now, and I, this cannot interest uh, or highlight enough, it should not, data should not be interpreted either beef or plant-based meat is better. That's also beyond the point, they are different. Um, mimicking also what this data highlights is that attempting to mimic complex foods using isolated proteins, fats, vitamins, and minerals really underestimates the nutritional complexity of whole foods in a natural state. In other words, you can make the nutrition facts panels look the same, but you have not replicated the whole food matrix. And that is so important. And I also think that we are often falling the strap of this plant versus animal uh, discussion, which is really beyond the point that we really need to move beyond that. We need to increase fruit production potentially by 50 to 60% by 2050. And we must do so by improving both animal and plant foods. And the nutrients they provide should arguably be viewed as complementary rather than competitive in, in this scenario. And uh, I think that is so important to know. And to bring it all back, uh, what we some farmers are definitely doing or what we are hopefully doing more in these agroecological systems is integrating uh, uh, biodiversity and even where possible, sometimes integrated crop livestock systems. Now, this is really the bigger picture of it. Uh, you might wonder, what is a human nutrition scientist doing in the field of agriculture? Well, I only study a small portion of this, which is the human health aspect. That is really my uh, bread and butter. But in this type of work, we're interested in linking the fields of food production, nutrition, and population health. And uh, as, as Tillman Clark put it so nicely in their nature paper, diets really do link human and environmental health. And, and even a paper that came out recently in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition suggested that we look at diets both take into account human and environmental metrics. And really what we're interested in is do agroecological or sometimes referred to as regenerative practices also benefit human health because ultimately soil health, plant health, animal health, and human health, and together make up planetary health are probably all interrelated. So by improving the health of soils, by improving and nourishing the plants and animals, we can nourish uh, potentially ourselves. And that is uh, questions we're trying to address. Without uh, further ado, I'd like to acknowledge uh, several individuals that made this work possible. As I said, none of this was, was done alone or true or accomplished through interdisciplinary research, um, various, various collaborators uh, throughout the US and uh, even international. And with that, I would like to thank you all and uh, 
open it up to any questions and, and discussions. Uh, and I'm very interested in, in hearing what you all think and uh, any questions that you may have. So thank you so much. Great. Thank you very much. That was really clear and really interesting. <laughs> so, and very important. Um, you know, just a reminder to everyone here, this is part of the Grassland 2.0 digital uh, dialogue, digital discussion series. Um, and if you haven't checked out the Grassland 2.0 project page, I just put the link in the chat. Um, so this is really important research that Dr. Van Vliet has presented with us because the Grassland 2.0 project seeks to understand um, how we could have agroecological transformation from the cropping systems, working with farmers to understand how, how they might make change into cropping systems that support water quality, soil health, uh, deal with climate adaptation and mitigation, and then what the economics and the flows and the community and social interactions are with that systems change. And so having this really important and rigorous research on the human health connections to the animal health connections back to the crops and the, the grasslands is, is critical. So um, great. Um, and we're going to open it up for questions here. I also would just remind folks that we have a series of these conversations. So please do uh, get them into your calendar. I'm going to put the link for those in the chat also. But we're going to open it up for questions. I'm thinking that people can use the raise your hand function, or if you if you feel more comfortable typing a question into the chat, um, I'm happy to read that. Uh, and we have a good, we have till 1.30, so we're, we're good. We can have a good discussion. <laughs> okay, so Jean, Jean, do you wanna unmute yourself and just ask your question? Sure, we're a small group. Uh, first question was, um, when you're measuring the metabolites, are they only in the red meat or are there also goodies in the fat component? Uh, so do we need lean beef or is some level of fat okay? Yeah, so it, it depends on the compound that you're looking at, uh, several benzoates and, and uh, hydroxycinamic acids, which is a major compound of, uh, of polyphenols. These, these might be water soluble because uh, we find in the lean portion, but also uh, many of the terpenes uh, and uh, tocopherols, carotenoids, those are fat soluble. So uh, certainly I would say that um, it's okay to consume some fat too. Yes, definitely a lot of these compounds are, are fat soluble and, uh, and, and they're certainly found in, uh, in, in the fattier, uh, yeah, the fat portion of, uh, of the meat uh, as well. Great. Um, hey, would you mind on stop your sharing and then maybe we can see yes. everybody? Oh, yes, okay. sure. Sorry. I, I, yeah. uh, no, that's okay. I actually see the questions I... now. Okay, let me, uh, <laughs> let me, let me see when it comes uh, back when you stop the sharing. 
Okay, great. Okay. Oh, so, but maybe, okay. So Randy Jackson has his hand raised, so go for it, Randy. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Van Vliet, for this wonderful presentation. Great information. Uh, as Sarah said, so clearly uh, articulated, really appreciate it. My question is kind of related to one that Gene put in the in the chat box, and that's related to pasture diversity, et cetera. And you, you make a strong point about something about the diversity uh, seems to be leading to better phytochemical profiles, et cetera. And I guess I wonder if you all have explored whether it's just something related to the composition of the pastures specifically, like maybe a large clover content or something like that. Um, or, you, and the reason I ask this is you, you may know that in the plant ecology world, people spend their careers arguing over, is it really the diversity effect or is it the composition effect? Is it like, is it really critical that there's a particular species in the mix? Uh, yeah. Is that something you all have explored at all, or or not? Really? Yeah, we're we're exploring it now in our in our work. Um, so, the past few years we have just looked at homogeneous, so so a, a, a composite sample of the pasture. Um, during the past grazing season, we have also been collecting a lot of individual plants to uh, to analyze to see. I mean, certainly from the, as you highlighted. Uh, from the plant ecology literature, some plants are more phytochemically rich than others, all right? Um, so it's probably, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, if you have a very diverse mixture of plants, but uh, none of them are particularly very rich in phytochemicals, then uh, maybe you see some, like, some diversity, but not very high amounts of these phytochemicals. Uh, but if you have also, improved, uh, have certain very phytochemically rich uh, uh, species of, uh, of plants, then yeah, that, that would obviously increase the, the phytochemical richness uh, of, of the meat. So I, yeah, th my guess, my gut feeling tells me the answer is somewhere in the middle. Um, the, the number of plants, I'm not 100% sure. And, and that's also is where it gets nuanced really quickly, right? If you have four very phytochemically rich species or five phytochemically rich species, then you may have a benefit over, uh, someone who has like 20 species. So, uh, and the, the difficult part is also is that we can see what the animals have access to, but it is darn hard to find out what they actually ate too. Um, so in field observations, and we use also in high today, we use uh, DNA metabar coding of their stool samples to figure out the plant species in their, uh, in their stool, but that is also measured by protein. So it, the more protein rich uh, plants also, uh, yeah, certain legumes or, or uh, that contain higher protein content will also then be more predominant. So, long story short, is that uh, yeah, we don't know 100% yet, but uh, I, I uh, that's certainly uh, some of the things that we're uh, trying to tease out some of these nuances now. Great. And hey, Jean, I'm going to give the floor to Rick Adamski since you had your first question. So we'll go to Rick, um, farmer and thinker from up in the northeastern part of Wisconsin. <laughs> thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Dr. Van Vliet, for the very nice presentation. My question is, in the medical community, where is the study of 
phytochemicals? Is it uh, uh, regarded uh, significantly? Is it considered as secondary? Where is it in the medical uh, area of research? Yeah, I mean, in the medical area of research, you probably have a little bit of a ways to go because we uh, typically consider red meat to be unhealthy, right? Without uh, for any further uh, nuance, full stop. So that's that's also in, in the background diet is so important. Um, certainly uh, in, in the nutrition field, um, phytochemicals are an emerging area of interest. Um, mostly been studied in, in Petri dishes, so in uh, uh, cell lines, also in animal models. But what you typically see there is that phytochemicals in amounts that you would get that are uh, true to diet, so realistic amounts, do impact uh, disease risk, uh, our, our uh, brain health, and also uh, our anti-inflammatory and antioxidant responses. So. In the human nutrition data, and this is mostly been studied in the context of uh, berries uh, and maybe things like, like grapefruit, ju uh, grape juice and, and other phytochemically rich uh, fruits, is that what you see in that data is that it, in the hours afterwards, and uh, even for up to 48 hours, it improves cerebral blood flow, it improves working memory, and this coincides with uh, highest amounts of these metabolites in the plasma too. Also, we know a lot of these metabolites, these, these phytochemicals are metabolized in, in by our gut bacteria. So at least in the human nutrition field, it does seem like these phytochemicals are impacting our health. They are impacting metabolism and they are turning on and off genes that are related to disease processes. What we do not know is how the phytochemicals from meat or milk impact us uh, as, as in regards to human health. So we know that there's differences in bioavailability in certain nutrients, whether they come from plants or animals. We don't know yet if uh, some of these, these phytochemicals, are they, is there a difference in, in bioavailability if they, come, if they come from the meat or the milk? Some of these unique compounds, can they impact us? So there is certainly uh, an emerging area of interest. I think there's also, with regards to food metabolomics, there's a, an interest now in sort of figuring out the gray matter of food, all these other compounds that's beyond the vitamins, minerals, and proteins. So it is certainly a growing area of research, but uh, I would be the first one to admit to say that uh, we need to further understand the importance of these compounds in, uh, in, in human health. And uh, But initial research definitely suggests that uh, they're impacting our metabolism and, uh, and, and impacting... Uh, disease-related gene expression and at least can uh, impact our, uh, our, our cognitive function as well, so. Thank you. Dean, go ahead. Sure, um, on your plant-based burger data are that they're adding, that the food factory uh, is adding calcium and potassium and vitamins to the product, are those, even though we can measure them as comparable, are they equally absorbed in the human body? Are they metabolized by the person the same? Or do we have that data? Or maybe you talked it, and I just didn't understand it. Yeah, no, I, so in this, uh, in this data, we didn't look at it specifically, but uh, from other work, 
there's definitely data to suggest that, uh, and it is a, a, a study that was done a few years ago. What the authors did was they um, fed people meat, and obviously from meat, uh, beef, you would get uh, zinc, iron, B12, uh, and other bioavailable vitamins and minerals. What they did was, is that they replicated that meat matrix by providing these as isolated compounds. So isolated zinc, isolated iron, isolated B12 as supplements. What they found was if you feed, if you give people the exact same amount of uh, vitamins and minerals in, in supplemental form as that found in the beef, is that the beef had a, a greater improvement in iron and zinc status. So there's definitely the simplicity to the ideas that, oh, we can just fortify or take supplements and that would end up in the same, uh, get to the same endpoint. Yeah, that is uh, nutritional reductionism. And because, uh, and if we're from a mechanistic standpoint, we know that within the food matrix, there's hundreds of thousands of compounds that, that can interact with each other that act as cofactors in, in the uptake. Uh, and uh, for instance, the tight connection between like zinc and, and copper metabolism, right? And uh, so there's uh, several cofactors that, that can impact the, the uptake of vitamins and minerals. And uh, typically in the whole food matrix, uh, we see an, an added benefit uh, versus uh, uh, vitamins versus supplemental vitamins and minerals. So I would definitely think on a, milligram or microgram to microgram comparison then yes the bioavailability from whole foods is typically higher and and that's why i i think we should always focus on the first food first approach as much as possible when uh, meeting our uh, nutritional requirements great julie doll hello you have a hello question. sarah good to Hi. see you um, this was just wonderful. So my question is not very well articulated yet in my mind, but maybe you can help me figure it out. So this is so interesting. And I feel like consumers are already completely confused about what to buy with all of the choices and labels, let alone policymakers. I don't know, like, do you, what do you see as a, some viable paths forward to, to help this be you know, these products be explained or marketed or how can we like message this or I don't know, just any thoughts along those lines would be great. Yeah, no, no, it, it was very, very well articulated actually. So uh, it's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, sort of the broader picture of it is consumers are very confused. I agree with that. Uh, this week, uh, eggs might be good for us. Next week, they might uh, give us heart disease again. And the week after, they might give us diabetes. And then we figure out, oh, no, they're healthy after all. Uh, confusing for nutritional researchers and for uh, policymakers, let alone consumers. A lot of it, that's a different discussion. But a lot of it boils down to the background diet, right? If we uh, uh, are to consume uh, these eggs as Egg McMuffins is going to be different than uh, if you scrambled eggs with some uh, some peppers and onions in the morning. Also, the background diet in which we these consume is so important. If we consume a healthy diet with a few eggs, uh, no issue, right? Uh, if we consume ultra processed diet, then yes, the ultra processed foods then it, it's an issue, and that's a uh, that's a huge problem. Um, I think we need to do a better job at uh, um, communicating that to consumers. Also, keep in mind the bigger picture. We need to look at this from dietary patterns. We're always thinking it's like, oh, food A contains saturated fat and saturated fat is bad. So therefore food A is bad. 
So we need to move away from single nutrients. We probably even need to move away from single foods all to, uh, to an extent and really look at dietary patterns and look at from that, that perspective, because that is so important. Um, and the way that we communicate that uh, to, uh, to, to participants or to uh, consumers too. Now, regarding the grass-fed beef or milk in particular, yeah, this would also be highlighting to an extent, and that's consumer education, but that is saying like, hey, when animals have access to, to pasture, particularly are, are outside consuming a wide range of plants, this meat or milk may uh, contain additional potentially health promoting nutrients. And I think that would be a way of, of, of like describing that for uh, maybe like a farmer or a direct to consumer marketing. And certainly want to be careful that we don't want to greenwash that and, and, and take it too far. Uh, but that might be a way of doing that. On the other hand, I'm thinking the last thing farmers need is probably maybe another uh, uh, expensive uh, uh, certification. Uh, but yeah, in, in that regard, it is uh, yeah connecting with, I'd say, like farmers that that are doing these these things and and and, and uh, as a farmer i think also you have a very powerful role in this right because you're able to uh sort of uh, are the earliest doctors i guess right by the foods that you provide to to uh, humans it's really the way that we can we can nourish uh, uh humans and uh and i think that is also so so important so yeah that is just just yeah i think engaging in in conversation with uh, with consumers and and and, and putting this the hit is complex but putting these complex messages in a way that is simplified, but not too uh, simple, because then we start to fall in this trap of uh, saturated fat is bad, therefore we must yeah. avoid it like the plague. I heard recently an acupuncturist um, who I really respect told me, you know, just Julie, just eat the rainbow, eat the rainbow of foods. And like when it just kind of stuck in my head, right? Because it's really easy and simple. And then when you start to really think about it, there's not that many really healthy, just white foods or, you know, and, and it's kind of similar, maybe like we eat the rainbow foods and then we want our animals that produce for us to eat a rainbow of foods. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think definitely if you're mo mostly focused on, uh, on, on minimally processed foods, uh, animal and plant foods, uh, and, and limit our intake of packaged foods and ultra processed foods. then I think, uh, you know, increase our, our fiber fruits, vegetables, things like that. Uh, yeah, that for most of us, at least on a population-based level, yeah, we've been improving our health. Like getting there is easier said than done. I must admit that with an overabundance of uh, of, of calories, energy-rich, nutrient-poor foods. But that is a discussion that we uh, probably have for another uh, couple of days and not figure it out. But also totally outside of my field. So, like, how do we get people actually healthier? But that's a, an interesting field by itself. Okay, I'm going to pass the floor to Thelma Heidel Baker. You want to ask a question? And then I'll get Eugene. Yeah, hi, thanks. Oh, I'm really enjoying this whole discussion here and the topic of nutrition and thinking about, um, you know, the diets of animals and things and the impacts to the, the products they produce. One of the things that I've I really appreciate what you were talking about with the comparisons with the like beyond meat and the, and the plant-based alternatives. Cause that's something I've been thinking a lot about. There's a ton of 
interest in that it's all over the marketplace. It's being discussed all the time as somebody who produces grass-fed beef and um, does this. I think about it a lot because it's the direct, I don't know, and people compare it all the time, but yet at the same time, you're showing how different they are. So I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you is just in the, the information, the data that you were showing and you were comparing how the plant-based versus the, the ground beef, just, just as a clarification, was that ground beef, uh, grass-fed beef, or was that grain-fed? It was and, Go ahead. No, we'll go ahead if you had another question, yeah. Well, it was, it was kind of along those lines, because I, if it is grass-fed, um, did you do a comparison with the grain-fed? Because you already showed how the differences are great between the grain-fed and grass-fed. And then, you know, when they do these comparisons saying, oh, the plant-based alternative meats are, are so close to the the other, if there's already these differences between those two types of beef, um, where does that fall on that assessment of the, of the nutritional components of it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So it was grass-fed beef, um, grass-fed beef uh, from uh, diversified pasture. Uh, farmer's name is Glenn Alzinga. He raises uh, cattle in uh, Idaho, mountains of Idaho. And uh, so that's definitely one of the critiques that we got uh, on our paper. The reason why we compared it to grass-fed beef instead of grain-fed beef is because grass-fed uh, beef and plant-based meat alternatives, they're both sometimes or oftentimes touted as more environmentally friendly and healthier, right? That's often the messages that we hear. It gets more nuanced than that, but that's at least was our rationale. Um, and they're also in the roughly similar price point, though I must admit that the plant-based meat alternatives are still more expensive than uh, most grass-fed beef. So the reason that we compare it to grass-fed beef is because consumers both would uh, uh, consider those to be environmentally more sustainable and healthier to consume. So we did that comparison because indeed, as you pointed out, we have, already have comparisons of grass-fed and grain-fed beef. Um, but uh, at the same time, uh, and the study was also unfunded, so that's why we also didn't uh, do that because you have to pay it out of our own, uh, from, from you know, like pull the funds together out of other ways to do that. Um, which we also didn't want to get funded. We didn't want to say be funded by by a you know beef or or, or plant based for that matter, uh, just because it's a it's a such a hot topic. But I mean, in the end, I'm, I'm digressing. It didn't matter because if I, I have funding from the beef industry, so people would obviously think like, oh, this, this guy is. Uh, Tainted. But but anyway, uh, long story short, is that uh, yeah there will be additional differences. But these things like like some of the compounds that we looked at, we we didn't per se run a very deep phytochemical assay on that. But things such as storing, answering, creatine, uh, carnosine, these are all bioactive compounds that are found in meat or in animal foods, I should say irrespective of whether it's grass-fed or grain-fed, these are compounds that are actually found in animal foods and not in, in plant foods. So even from that perspective, we were looking at it is that a lot of these differences would hold up irrespective of whether it, uh, it was uh, 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 grass-fed or grain-fed, right, in, in these things. Because even though there might be subtle, it might be differences between grass-fed and grain-fed, the black and white difference that we showed on or found in the plant-based meal alternative and the beef, and the grass-fed beef, yeah, that is in, in our grass-fed and grain-fed beef comparison. Yes, the, the, the plot is a little bit closer together, still differences, but this black and white by comparison, night and day comparison, 
that was something that we even sort of blew our hats off because I did not expect to be like that big of a difference. But then if you think about it, it is as different as you expect a plant and animal to be, I guess. Thank you. Great. Jean, go for it. Your, your conclusions in part four were, at least on paper, grass-fed beef appears to be healthier. Um, maybe if you could speculate, um, not that you would know an answer, because we probably haven't done the work, but thinking about um, epigenetics and pre or perinatal nutrition uh, of, of uh, certain developmental development fetal developmental stages and the nutrition at that time and potential for positive outcomes or protective, you know, can we switch genetics on and off uh, as a result of, of grass fed beef with those phytochemicals? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Very good question. What we do know is that what you feed the fetus and then the young infant during pregnancy, especially the third trimester and all, but also during the first hundred days of its life, it's going to set itself, going to set the, the child up for either a lifelong struggle with disease or certain protection of disease, right? So what you feed the child during that, that first 100 days and also what the mother consumes during the, her pregnancy, it's, it's so important. So um, I would say that there's definitely a potential for that um, to be the case. Um, but I also must be realistic is that the real elephant in the room, obviously, is going to be diet quality. If someone eats a uh, standard American diet, goes to a fast food chain every uh, night for lunch or dinner, right? Eats pizzas and hamburgers at night, switching out a grain fat patty with a grass fat patty. I mean, that's, that's like, uh, yeah, that, 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 that won't make a dent in it. Um, on the other hand, if someone eats very healthy and... Uh, uh, maybe then, you know, it's, it's overall diet quality is so important. Well, let's take the example, for instance, if a mother is consuming a, a fairly healthy diet, but switches out all the animal sourced foods, the dairy, the eggs, pork, chicken, uh, beef, all with pasteurized versions. And yeah, then we're probably making a big enough, we could be making a big enough difference in the diet uh, that uh, maybe that would, uh, would impact uh, uh, things. But uh, yeah, I think the, none of this can be, decoupled from diet quality so uh but yeah it's certainly very interesting and uh, it could be possible because uh you do see it in human nutrition uh, uh intervention trials is that at least acutely phytochemically rich foods and again this hasn't been studied in the context of the meat and milk per se but the phytochemically rich foods it turns on certain genes on and off in the 48 hours after consumption so there's clearly something going on it's clearly impacting metabolism so I would definitely not, uh, yeah, I, I, I would, if I were to speculate, I think it would matter. I just don't know how much. Great. Um, I have, oh, Randy, go ahead. <laughs> oh, David. Oh, okay. let, let David, let David get in or, or somebody yeah. else. <laughs> go for it, David. Hi, I have to unmute myself. Good Good afternoon. Hi, how are you? Sorry, right. I missed most of it due to a conflict. Um, but I'm, I've heard you speak a couple of times, I guess. Um, 
I'm I'm really curious, you know, to, to see your affiliation with the the medical school and coming from you know nutrition background and and kinesiology is is part of it as well, and knowing some, not all the people here were usually coming from natural resource schools or from environmental backgrounds, agronomy, ecology. Where do you see these two worlds beginning to intersect from whether an academic perspective or a policy perspective, whether we have health and human services and CDC and NIH on one side and USDA over here, or whether we have the ag school and the med school are these two silos that are usually yeah. so far apart. And I think this work in particular and, and some of the work that, that we've been doing also is starting to show that they're not actually that different and they really need to be focusing on together. And I'm just wondering you know, what your thoughts are on, on how to do that uh, now that we've at least identified that we're talking about two sides of the same coin. Yeah, no, it's a great, great question, uh, David. Great to see you. And uh, it was, yeah. I don't want to get too far on my, on my soapbox here, but yeah, the fact that, that we're in a medical school, mostly studying diseases of dietary origin, treating it at the back end with pharmaceuticals and pay no attention to agricultural schools. Yeah, that is mind blowing. That, that is really, really mind blowing. Now, I do think that times are changing in a bit. Is that like, how can we stimulate that? Well, that is by having the NIH and the USDA fund this type of research, this systems type of research. And they're certainly are more calls to do that, um, but it is certainly not the norm yet either to uh, to engage in this systems type of research. But yeah, I think it's so important because farmers, ecologists, agronomists, livestock scientists, we all have sort of the same idea in mind is that how can we produce foods as sustainably possible and how can we do it that improves our health? And we, the, the two are probably also very much uh, related, right? Like if we, start to improve soil health, plant health, uh, animal health, we probably also improve human health. And uh, I, I uh, think you wrote an excellent uh, uh, white paper on this recently that I, uh, that I came, came across. Yes, yes, that's right. Which I enjoyed very much reading to linking these. And indeed, as you also point out, is that we're very much in the infancy of it, but it does seem like uh, it's heading in the direction. We are moving up in that direction, certainly not moving down, if, if anything. So long way to go, baby steps as always in, uh, in, in science and, and policy. But uh, yeah, all, all we can do is uh, get different players involved. And also important, the food industry, right? Like uh, uh, players that without support from uh, uh, industry, as it has been pros and cons working with industry, but without uh, industry, we're not going to get very far either, which is why I think it's great that some of the bigger companies are moving into this space. And certainly, of course, they are seeing this from also we can make profit on this. But if if it means they do the right thing in the meantime, then, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. So it's just getting multiple players involved and uh, and and yeah, just keep keep pushing forward, I guess, uh, is, is the, the goal. Great. Oh yeah, David, thanks for putting the link in there. Uh, Julie. I just wanted to follow up with a comment. This week I had a conversation with a friend who is a social worker. She's a therapist. And she said she is uh, has been trained on the link between nutrition and mental health. She said it's so not talked about, right? But just these deficiencies in our current food um, have really dropped our serotonin levels. And, you know, she works with her people to like 
talk about amino acid supplements and like good diets because amino acids from proteins go right, you know, help build, go directly into serotonin and serotonin production. So it just was fascinating to hear about that. And, you know, you think about like what we're feeding our kids and what we feed in prisons and hospitals. And it's like, how can you get better physically, let alone mentally on so much of that? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. And, and it's definitely the, I mean, I don't have the numbers, but when we recruited subjects, maybe like eight, 10 years ago, we always had an exclusion criteria, especially for middle-aged and older adults is antidepressants. You know, if I do that today, then I have to kick out, I, I could barely, you know, recruit the subjects, uh, research participants sometimes. And, uh, or, or certain uh, drugs is that, uh, that you have to have exclusion criteria. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. Like uh, people are over uh, certain ages. Yeah, just prescribing drugs, I guess. But yeah, we should really, that's again, dealing the, with, the, with the symptom or sort of like a prescription uh, uh, path approach to, uh, to health rather than, uh, which is important too, but it should be a short-term uh, solution. And the long-term solution should be changing your lifestyle. What is the reason that you are in this? Uh, and, and yeah, it is so hard because it's, it, a lot of times it's not even, you know, the, 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 that an individual is, is lazy or, or whatever, right? It's like, it's, it, it needs to come from like bigger policy. The reason people are, are uh, have metabolic disease, mental health, it's not just because they're, uh, even their fault to you know or, or don't have willpower i mean it's it's really this this constant bombarding of being directed nudged into like uh, a stressful life uh, energy rich nutrient poor foods and uh, that sort of uh, impact uh, uh, our flavor feedback responses and uh, and and tend to overeat and and things like that we, we see this in in, in a trial we do now we have matched for foods ultra processed versus uh, uh, minimally processed and it is almost impossible to keep people uh, from overeating and it, so it cannot even be decoupled from that because eating uh, some strawberries you get the flavor but you also get the nutrients eating a strawberry gusher you get the flavor but you don't get the nutrients so you probably end up overeating because you don't get the normal uh, neural feedback responses and so uh yeah it, it's it's definitely a super complicated uh uh avenue of, of, of work but, but i 100 agree that we we underestimate the, the role of food in there absolutely which we historically seen as energy and just like you know getting your nutrients in but not really viewing it as a as a pathway to uh to help as much as we should i think thanks randy do you want to you had your hand up before and i shooed you away <laughs> well i i guess my question was going to be a little bit sort of related to what we've been talking about, but it was um, a little more cynical, let's say. I'm wondering, Stefan, are there folks out there that are doing research that is the opposite of what you're finding, that are generating results showing that, you know, um, there aren't really differences and um, I'm just trying to understand yeah. the landscape out there. Like, is there a real antagonism there? Or, you um, mean in, in regards to the phytochemicals? Yeah, phytochemicals and then just more broadly, you know, with grass-fed compared to other types of foods. Yeah, I mean, certainly there is, there is research on that. And, and I think uh, 
Yeah, it, it depends on the interpretation here is that there's differences between omega-3 fatty acids and conjugated linoleic acid in grass fed versus grain fed. There's typically no difference in protein, typically no differences in uh, uh, zinc, uh, iron, uh, uh, certain vitamins. Some work showed a difference in thiamine and riboflavin, Susan Duckett's lab out of Clemson, but that was not everyone has found that. Um, so typically based on this sort of like this handful of nutrients, you say there's no differences and the omega-3s are so low that it doesn't matter, right? We compare the salmon. So the, push, the pushback might be like the coarse stuff, the big stuff, not really that different. You got to really dig down and get at the fine tuning to, to find yeah. the differences. Am, yeah. I, am I articulating yeah. that right? That, yeah. That's right. And then people are like, well, I mean, how does, how much does it matter really? And um, um, yeah, I mean, the literature itself, like this has been heavily studied in uh, particularly in uh, Italy and uh, France. They study these phytochemicals, but they came out from a food science perspective because they look at the phytochemicals as flavor compounds and flavor and, and, and health is related, right? These are, these, how do we get our cheese to taste great? Um, I'm sitting there looking at as a human nutrition scientist and I'm like, wait a minute, these are compounds that also have health benefits. So the two are probably related. So there's, we're definitely not the, uh, the only ones finding that. And in fact, we're not even the ones who are credited with this, making this up. As I said, the golden rule of science is if you can think of it, someone else has thought of it way before you did, just using less sophisticated techniques. So I would say phytochemical difference is fairly well established. Um, question is how much does it matter? And the pushback mostly on this is not so much the diet or, or the, the data. The same with the plant-based meat alternatives. The pushback is not so much on the data. The pushback is on this, like, you know, what, what, how, who, you know, what does it matter really? How important is yeah. this? And yeah, that I, uh, I, I don't know yet. And then also, again, this nuance of diet quality is so important. I mean, we must also be realistic. The reason we have a, an epidemic of metabolic disease in the U.S. is not because most of us are eating grain-fed beef, right? We must be that realistic. It is the overall diet that uh, that that matters. Yeah. And 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 then are we? Will it make a difference? Sure. Uh, and and I I think it will. But we must also not lose sight of the bigger picture, which is uh, the fact that we eat two thirds of our foods from ultra-processed uh, junk. What, what you said about the literature reminds me that my former grad student, David Duncan, in his oral, in his uh, dissertation defense, was asked something about the literature. And he said, well, the literature is like the city at night. You can find whatever you want if you go looking for it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And yeah, that's true. That's true. And even with some of the modeling approaches, how you do it, like, like uh, you have like these nutrient density scores, depending on the model that you throw, and you can make liver look the healthiest, or you can make kill look the healthiest, right? Uh, it was a paper that came out a few days ago in Nature Food that, that uh, found that Cheerios and Fruit Loops are much healthier than uh, unprocessed mm. cheese and uh, beef. Oh, good. So, so it's, it's uh, yeah, th those are apparently chocolate-covered al almonds or health foods and Fruit Loops, but uh, cheese and beef are not. Um, so, but other metrics might show like, hey, you know, liver, beef amongst the most nutrient-dense foods. So these score high, uh, whereas the Fruit Loops maybe score a little bit lower, which probably is where... I would think they should score, um, but uh, uh, yeah. So it, it, like you said, uh, you said it really well, Randy. Depending on on uh, what you what you go looking for, you can find it. Uh, but yeah, then it's also just yeah, 
asking people, even in research, I think it's so important to ask people that uh, uh, the paper on plant-based meal turners, I sent it to a few people that are on plant-based diets. And I'm like, what do you think of this? I don't want this to sound like I am anti-plant-based or vegan or anything. You know, and I really want to make that look clear because we all eat. So, um, so that, that's so important. So I think it's a, in, in part, it is uh, our responsibility to not uh, fall into dogmatic traps and keep our eyes open. But yeah, sometimes if you do research for, for a long time, then you might actually believe that your way is the only way, right? So uh, we have to be careful for that. Maybe I'm wrong about all of this, and then ten years I have to. But I'm saying, but I'm saying we always must be keep keep an open mind, right? So that's that's the point I'm trying to make. Great. Well, I see we're up against time. I do want to invite people to before we say thank you. I want to make sure that we know that Thelma Heider Baker is our next guest speaker in the series and she is coming up on the let me get it in front of me the 16th of november at noon central and she will be talking about benefits of grazing to birds bees family and farm so i just want to make sure that people know that um, and I wanna thank everyone for tuning in and especially thank Dr. Van Vliet for being here and sharing his super important research. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, great, great discussion. <laughs> cool, well, good. Well, I hope everybody has a good rest of your day. Thank you, bye-bye. A big thanks to Dr. Van Vliet for presenting in the Grassland 2.0 Digital Dialogue Series. Next month, we'll hear dairy farmer and entomologist Thelma Heidel-Baker describe the benefits of grazing for pollinators, invertebrates, and other wildlife. Until then, thanks for listening to GrassCast, the Grassland 2.0 podcast.